Hi there, pinball fans. It's your favorite clown, Krusty. And you're listening to Norman Shaggy on the Topcast, the greatest pinball show ever made. Uh, can I get my money now? I'm such a whore. You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash topcast. Okay, welcome to TopCast tonight, another uh, weekday interview edition. Tonight we're going to be talking to a gentleman that remanufactures parts for 1990s uh, dot matrix style pinball games. And uh, he's got a kind of an interesting history in the business, and he also works closely with Gene Cunningham in Illinois Pinball, and they kind of have an alliance. So we're going to, uh, we're going to talk to him right now. Special guests, special guests, special guests, special guests. Okay, so we're about to give James Laughlin of Pinball Inc. in Atlanta, Georgia, a call on the phone. Give him a buzz right now. Let's make sure he's there. James, hi, how are you doing tonight, James? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Thank you very much. So, James, you are uh, the guy, the man behind all these plastic replacement ramps at Pinball Inc. in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Correct. Okay. So why don't we back up before we start talking about your current product line and your association with, um, uh, with your alliance, I should say, with Gene Cunningham. Uh, why don't we back up? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history in, uh, in pinball uh, how you got into it? Um, you know your 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 first your first uh, your first thoughts and and uh, cravings for it. Uh, as far as pinball itself, it's something that uh, I like. A lot of the people that are involved in the hobby played as a kid, a teenager, at the local arcades back when uh, arcades were prevalent, and in those arcades, pinball machines were actually prevalent. Um, and through the years, just continue to play mostly electromechanical because, uh, not to age myself, that's the era that I grew up in. Um, and do you remember the first games that you were played? What's that? Do you remember the titles of the first games you played? Uh, well, it was the mid-70s, early to mid-70s. Uh, games like Grand Prix, Wizard, uh, Captain Fantastic are ones that I remember well. Um, some of the, uh, some of the Gottliebs, uh, uh, were at our local arcade. We had one that was about three miles from my house. So I was able to, to go up there on a frequent basis. Um, but, uh, I would say back then, I, my actual favorite was Grand Prix when it came out. And how um, old were you when all this was going on when you first got involved? Uh, mid seventies, uh, I started out 12 years old, 72, uh, through 75, 76. When I got my driver's license, I sort of uh, ventured on into other things, as they say, uh, which was in 1976. And what, and, uh, do you remember the video game craze? Uh, yeah, the video game craze actually is where I came into the business. Uh, I, As I got out of high school, and uh, went 
uh, into the job field uh, as I was going through school, um, I went to work for Six Flags Amusement Centers, and that was in 1979-1980. And, of course, that's when the Pac-Man craze started coming in. And, uh, you know, video games really got big. Uh, of course, uh, Pong had been out for a while, but uh, when the uh, video craze got into the billion-dollar business uh, when Pac-Man and, and of course, it's uh, uh, the Ms. Pac-Man uh, came out, that's when it. Uh, I went into and uh, went to work for uh, Six Flags Amusement Services, and they had game rooms all over the country. So you, um, right out of high school, you went right. You went for the throat and went right into it. Yeah, I lucked into it. I guess it was something I saw and I had in the paper. I had been uh, technically oriented or inclined in in high school. Uh, electronics and uh, electrical and mechanical things were were a hobby of mine. And so when I saw an ad in the newspaper for a opening position for technician, um, I went down and applied and got the position. And at that time, I was going to uh, college, going to uh, um, Southern Tech to get uh, my electronics degree. And so it really fit in well. Uh, the two of them were very close to each other as far as logistics go. So it was easy. It was a perfect match for me. It was something that uh, was a hobby of mine. At the same time, it was uh, part of my studies. Now, you did you have any experience when you went in for that interview? No, not experience as far as. Uh, well, no, I take that back. I tinkered around with the electromechanical machines at the arcade. I uh, did get to know the guy that worked there, and so when he would open up a machine, I'd help tinker around with him. And, and again, it was something that I was mechanically oriented as a kid. I was always working on stuff, or as my parents would say, I was always tearing stuff apart. So that was part of it. From remembering the interview, of course, that was years and years ago, uh, the interview was with a gentleman, Hugh Harrison, I uh, remember him because uh, he was a big Who fan, and at the same time, I was a Who fan, and so it, we, him and I clicked. Uh, it was something that uh, he, it, we, we, we were able to sit down and talk, and I guess that helped in the interview. So anyway, I got the job, and uh, it, uh, it, I guess, gave me the start into the industry or into the business. So what was your first repair? With Six Flags. Yeah, with Six Flags. Um, Was it a video game or a pinball? Well, let me think back on that. uh, I remember what it was. It was a uh, uh, Gottlieb uh, black hole. (laughs) <laughs> and it wasn't really a repair, it was a shop out, but it turned into a repair after I got through with it because of uh, something that I did, but uh, we won't go into that. No, let's uh, go into that. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Spill the beans. Uh, well, you know, just somehow another, I, I somehow crossed one uh, wire with another wire and uh, ended up having to repair a power supply. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought I was going to get canned for my first job the first week into it. But that, what, uh, that went it consisted of Six Flags, of course, had game rooms all over the country, and they had just opened one up at Acres Mill Shopping Mall here in Atlanta, and they sent me over there to uh, train with a manager, 
And uh, he said, well, this is how we shop out a pinball machine. And he took the glass off, and he got a phone call right about the time he slid the glass off and started showing me how to remove the rubber rings. Well, I, being the, the wanting to make an impression, wanted to continue with the job while he was on the phone, and somehow another crossed uh, the, uh, if I remember, it was the general illumination wires with the coil wires and uh, shorted out the bridge rectifier on the power supply and so ended up having to make a repair from there. But uh, <laughs> that was my inauguration into working in the business of pinball machines. Was he pretty mad? Oh, no, no. He laughed about it. <laughs> so did he know immediately what was wrong and, you know, so it wasn't too bad? Well, when he came by there, of course, I had that stuck-on-stupid look on my face. He uh, asked me what happened because, of course, Gottlieb's would shut down. And he just looked at me, and I said, well, I did this and I did that. And so we just got the meter out and started uh, troubleshooting. And then just another typical day at the office, I guess. Okay. So now, how long did you stay with this job? Six Flags, um, they were bought out by Bally, of all companies, in 19... I want to say it was 1982, late 82, mid-82 to 83. Um, and when Valley bought out Six Flags, they wanted me to move to Chicago. And I was still in school and didn't want to move because they were shutting down the repair facility uh, that Six Flags had in Atlanta. And so they were going to take everything and turn it over to the Aladdin's Castle group and uh, move uh, any, you know, they made a few offers to some of the people to move to Chicago and it just wasn't in the cards for me to move to Chicago so I just uh, actually at that time became a freelance technician for uh, the local operators and so I did that for a couple of years until uh, finished school and went into the computer field. And how when years. when you were doing the freelance for the operators, how did that go? I mean, any any interesting stories or you know, I mean, and what was your, do you remember uh, the rate of pay? Of. It was just typically I got to know some of the with Six Flags. Six Flags would sell some of the machines to the operators as they cycled them through the uh, game rooms. And so I got to know some of the local operators, and, and even while I worked for Six Flags, I worked for some of these operators on the side, making a little bit of uh, money, and just uh, doing some freelance work. So when uh, I saw that Six Flags was shutting down, and um, you know I had the choice of either going to Chicago or or staying in Atlanta, I chose to stay in Atlanta, and I just uh, networked with the operators that I got to know and uh, did a lot of freelance work, and that got me through school. Do you remember what you were getting paid per hour for the freelance stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just, uh, you know, they'd call me up and say, hey, we've got a game over at uh, this convenience store, or, you know, some of them had small arcades, uh, and I would just go out and repair the machines. But you don't remember your dollar rate? At that time, it was $25 an hour. That's pretty good. Yeah, um, but I never really charged. If I work for three hours, I usually only charge for two hours. Um, I, I, I usually would give away a little bit of my time, it seems. Uh, but it, um, 
it it got me, as I said, through school. And and after I left school, I went into the computer field, worked on uh, CAD CAM computers, uh, laser cutters, in the apparel industry, actually, and uh, kept uh, really lost touch with the amusement industry and the pinball industry. And what year was this? But that I didn't hear you. What what year was this that you that you got into the uh, into the uh, CAD CAM stuff? Looking and... back on it, that would have been in eighty four. Okay. Uh, and eighty four, eighty five, and for um, let me see if I get my math straight. Yeah, eighty four, eighty five. So for a couple of years, I uh, just basically concentrated on the computer field and. Uh, um, didn't really do anything for, uh, I'd say, almost three years. Didn't do anything in the amusement part of it. Uh, really had the intentions of going forward with a computer career. And in 1987, I, I just so happened to be flipping through the newspaper and saw an ad in there uh, that somebody was looking for part-time work to work on antique jukeboxes and... Uh, pinball machines and video games for a, a company that was just starting up uh, to retail uh, jukeboxes, pinballs, video games. They they were uh, mainly a billiard uh, retailer, or going to be a, a billiard retailer. They were just opening up their store, and uh, Mike DeMoya was the guy, gentleman's name. And I went down and interviewed with him, so that he told me, yeah, it's, you know, just a couple hours a week. Uh, what they intended to do was sell you know, a few pinball machines, a few jukeboxes, a few video games, and just needed somebody to really support it as uh, warranty work. So I said, hey, why not? You know, I, I wanted to sort of get back into the old hobby. So it didn't, so, it didn't interfere with your computer job then at that point? Yeah, I was still working in the uh, the computer field at that time. So what, uh, and that just expanded and you eventually, you know, started doing it full time again or something? Well, what happened is, as Mike DeMoya opened up his store, I, within six months, uh, I actually incorporated, uh, Music and Games Incorporate, or uh, Music and Games Service Incorporated, while he incorporated under his, the store was Music and Games Incorporated. And so we basically started companies together and had an agreement. And I didn't take long to recognize that in the Atlanta area, there were no service technicians servicing machines in the home environment. There were plenty of them out there servicing the commercial operator, but none servicing the the home environment. Uh, and there were, we started getting, I can't say deluged, but... Uh, or inundated, but we were getting more and more calls for people requesting to uh, have service in home. And so at first I tried to hire a few people, and that didn't really work out. So eventually, uh, shortly after I got married, I was sort of pressed into the decision of do I continue on working until midnight, because at that point that's what I was doing, I'd work full-time during the day, and, and my uh, extra service at night would take me sometimes into midnight, and so I had to make that choice. Do I continue to work at midnight or give up one or the other? 
And by that time, I was actually getting bored with the computer business. It was just something that um, really wasn't uh, a hobby or something that I was truly interested in. I, I really got bored with uh, computers, and so I made the decision to quit my, as I call it, quit my last real job and go into the hobby uh, full time. And what year was this? That was uh, 20 years ago, 1987. And, and looking back on it, were you ever sorry you did that? No. Uh, it's something that working for yourself uh, is something I've never, never regretted. Uh, it's, it's, I tell people it's, it's a little daunting if you're used to collecting a paycheck because you have that security of a paycheck coming in, uh, but at the same time, you don't have the freedom. And I'm, I guess, more of the inclined to want freedom over security. And I've never in 20 years looked back and said, gee, I wish I had a job. Uh, it, it's just been something that uh, I couldn't see myself working for somebody else. Um, just that's just not in my nature. So from 1987, you you started this company and and you were basically a full time tech now. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and what was the next step? What was uh, you know how long did you do that for? Um, the the number of years may be a little bit skewed, but I would say music and games. Uh, the company Mike DeMoya started was mainly a billiard retail outlet. And I worked alongside of him and, and grew the music game service uh, business. And I would say that it was 1989 that, and, and well, I take that back, um, the year of the first Gulf War. I'm trying to b remember if that was 19. Yeah, that was 91. The beginning of 91, I think. Yeah, I was going to say 90 or 91. Yeah, the end of 90, beginning of 91. Yeah, if 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 if, if people that were around that uh, remember that time, that's when we were going through a sort of a recession, and Mike's company started to falter uh, for various reasons. The economy. Uh, management, money management, uh, whatever the reasons were, his company started to falter, and he ended up closing down. Uh, and I would say that that was in 92, uh, because uh, it was the year of the election. So that was 92. So he closed down music and games, and I broke off at that point, and moved to an area by the Atlanta airport and opened up my own little shop and, and at that time uh, started selling pinball machines for the first time uh, instead of just servicing because uh, I was no longer working with Mike who was doing sales. I never wanted to compete with him when I was working with him or in conjunction with him. So I never sold any machines, but when I broke off, uh, or when he closed down, I broke off, opened up my shop in Hayesville, Georgia, um, started selling machines for myself. And at that time, it was actually, I was selling and working more with jukeboxes, antique jukeboxes, than I was with pinball machine. The ratio was about three to one. So and like 50s? Over the next, 
50s jukeboxes, you know, like Wurlitzers and Seabergs type stuff? Exactly. Antique Wurlitzer, antique Seabergs, uh, uh, the 50s Seabergs, the 40 Wurlitzers, and, and some contemporary stuff. Uh, at that time, the CD jukeboxes were just starting to come around, uh, come into the marketplace. So I worked a little bit on that. But uh, the pinball machines, about a third of my business was, at that time was... Um, pinball machines. And over the next few years, the pinball machines became more and more popular and more and more in demand uh, in the, uh, by the customers. And the jukeboxes is uh, the home CD players and uh, eventually the MP3 players uh, uh, eventually just completely crushed the jukebox market and wiped it out to nothing. It's uh, Really, now about as dead a market as you can get. Jukeboxes uh, uh, are are long gone as far as being a, a vibrant business. So, over the next six years, say, um, I transitioned into mainly pinball machines and a few video games. Now, when did um, you get this idea for Pinball Inc.? Pinball Inc. Uh, was a product when in 2001 I started working on a board that we still sell, the BMD HVP board. And that I had incorporated Pinball Inc. a couple of years prior. You know, we should just say that that. That board goes in Williams WPC games. It's a, a high voltage power supply. If you uh, for a dot matrix WPC game, if you blow out the the high voltage, you basically just this thing just four screws. It sits right on top of the existing dot matrix controller. Couple connectors and boing, you're you're good to go. And and it was fairly inexpensive, like six sixty dollars, I want to say, or something like that. Uh, when we first the first run that we did on those, I want to say it was sixty five dollars. When we retailed it, if and you didn't want to repair the board, it, it was just a simple. Yeah, and, and the, plug the and short play. history on that board was in our shop. We were working on so many of the uh, in the late '80s, going into night, the early '90s, as the dot matrix, uh, or not '90s, uh, the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, we were working on so many of the Williams games uh, through that period, and a large percentage of them had that controller board burn up on them. And so just a little bit of uh, looking into the engineering of that board, we realized there was a design flaw, and the more current it drew, the the more that it damaged the controller board. So uh, getting tired of repairing all these controller boards, uh, I just decided to sit down and design a piggyback board to go over that and and bypass that circuit. And so when I did that, uh, we were using it in shop, and I just said, you know, this this has to be a viable product in the marketplace. And so that's when Pinball Inc. was basically, the name was dusted off because I had incorporated it a few years ago but never used it. Uh, it was just sitting there uh, as sort of a name reserve in the uh, with the Secretary of State of Georgia because... I had seen that Pinball's Music and Games was still the company we operated under, but the music part of it was really starting to fade away, 
and I had seen that the pinball part was going to be the prevalent company. So just out of, uh, I guess, foresight, I decided to incorporate that name and just put it uh, on the shelf to use later. And when I uh, designed that board and put it to the marketplace, uh, that's when Pinball Incorporated became the company that uh, we flew our flag under. And how did you... Uh... How did you change the design to compensate so that this board, your new board, didn't burn up? Well, the board that we designed, or that when I designed it, I put a current limiting circuit in there so that when the dot matrix controller started to request, or dot matrix display, I'm sorry, dot matrix display started to request more current from the board, my board would simply shut down. And so we just shut the circuit down and act basically as a circuit breaker at that point. So the board, the way I designed it was sort of, uh, it was a replacement to bypass a faulty circuit, but it also was a board that would tell you if your dot matrix controller, uh, dot matrix display was going bad. So if you installed our board and your display no longer works, then you know the display is draw too much current. Okay. Now, now, what was your next? Uh, what was your next step? Because you sold that board for, you know, you still sell it. Um, you know, that was your first product. What was your next yeah. product? Well, at that point, I w- was looking at. Well, if I'm going to start selling parts, I had a couple of directions that I could go in. And also at that time, Williams. Uh, it was right in that time frame that Williams was closing down. And so I sort of, I guess, saw the handwriting on the wall that the retail business of buying and selling machines and shopping them out uh, was now going to have a limited lifespan because the supply line was now cut off. Um, not the, not necessarily the new supply line, but the uh, the supply line looking forward five years because. The machines that we would deal with in our shop were generally machines that were five to six years old. They had cycled through the uh, the operator cycle, as we call it. They they had gone through the premier arcades, and then they had gone to the second level of operator, which we were the street operators, I called them, uh, the bars, the restaurants, etc. And then after that, uh, they went to the third tier operator in most cases, which were the convenience stores. And then at that point, that's when we usually would pick them up. And that life cycle was about five or six years. Hmm. Uh, so in 2001, I was, we were sitting there knowing that the supply line was going to dry up in about two to four years. And right. so to stay in the business, uh, we decided, or I decided, that uh, uh, we needed to go into the parts business. And, and again, we had, I looked at, well, we've got a choice. We can take the route of a company like the Pinball Resource or Marco um, or now Bay Area Amusements, companies like that, that take your supply items and also your machine-specific items, and they're resellers of those parts. Or we could go the direction of manufacturing. And I talked with a engineer uh, that works for a plastic company about plastic ramps for the pinball machines. And the reason that I looked at that was because, again, the years of shopping out the machines, the one product that we needed 
and as much as anything, but we're no longer able to get were the plastic ramps. And so I went to talk to um, uh, Brian Steinecker, who is an engineer in the plastics business about making plastic ramps. Okay, we'll be right back with James Laughlin of Pinball Inc. after these messages. Think you have what it takes to get on a TopCast? So do we. Truth is, we can't get enough of these personal promos. You know, Hi, this is Rick Swanson. This is Eric A. Hey, this is Cliffy. Hey, this is Curb, and you're listening. Hey, Edge, this is Mr. Hyde. And- so if you have this insatiable desire to hear yourself plugging TopCast on the virtual radio, and we really hope you do, send the corn an email, and he'll give you instructions on how you can be on the next show. T-H-E-K-O-R-N at... T-H-E-K-O-R-N dot net. The corn at the corn dot net. And we'll get you fixed up right away. And probably on the next show. Hey George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal. And it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to. You're going to have to go to PingGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I got to go. Got to call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. All right, we're back with an interview on TopCast with James Laughlin of Pinball Inc. No plastic experience prior to this then? No, not as far as... Uh forming plastics or, you know, I had a little bit of a background of knowledge of the chemical compounds and plastics from that nature, but as far as forming, uh, no. CNC uh, routing, yes. Uh, that I had the experience, and that's, I guess, another reason that I looked at that, because with my CAD background, the few years that I was in the computer business, that's what I did, is I worked on CAD systems, and I worked on cutting systems, and so I, I was familiar with CNC cutters and those type systems, and so I guess that was one of the reasons that uh, I was able, yeah, I, I thought about that direction. So what was your first ramp? The first ramp was the Whirlpool ramp for Whitewater. Okay, and why that one? Uh, that one for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's no hardware attached to that ramp. Uh, it was a simple single piece ramp. No rivets required, no decals required, uh, which is, of course, uh, another subject matter. Uh, it was just a simple form it on the mold, trim it out, and it's ready to go. And exactly how are those made? Are they vacuum formed, I assume? Thermoforming, which is, uh, a, a, some people do use the word vacuum forming, but it's a thermoforming uh, in that you heat up the sheet of plastic, and in this case we use a PETG plastic, um, and you just let it get to what we call the forming temperature, which with PETG is roughly 400 degrees, uh, and then... When it's at the forming temperature, you just the machine drops it down to the tool, and then the vacuum is engaged, and it, it pulls it down and forms it to the tool itself, which is the mold. 
and at that point you have a a rough form, or, or actually you would call it a, a complete form, and from there you have to trim it out using, first you rough cut it using a bandsaw, and then uh, you put it on a fixture that is uh, very similar to the mold itself to hold the plastic on a CNC machine, and then the CNC router, which is generally like a very much like a hand router that you would use at home, but it's on a five-axis uh, machine, and it uh, is programmed to go around and trim the plastic uh, to the form that you desire, in this case, a Whirlpool ramp. So when you do a ramp, how much money is involved in just in the tooling and setting up the CNC? I mean, you know, for any given ramp, it sounds expensive. Uh, it's not cheap. The Whirlpool ramp... The tool itself, the mold, and the CNC fixture uh, was $3,500. We ran 200 pieces, and I'm trying to remember the actual cost of the 200 per piece. That was a 24 by 24 sheet of plastic, and at that time, I want to say that the 187 the .187 thickness PTG was selling for approximately forty, call it forty-five dollars a sheet. Uh, we can round it down to forty dollars a sheet. So we were able to get uh, two, four, six. Um, we got eight parts off of that sheet. Um, in the perfect world, of course, about one out of every six or seven shots were bad shots, uh, throwaways. We couldn't use them. So, in actuality, let's say we got six six forms off each sheet. So, each each sheet uh, uh, at that time uh, it was about say ten dollars worth of plastic. And then you had the cycle time for the machine itself, which has to be taken into it, which cost. As that machine cycles, it's it's about another five to eight dollars per cycle, and that includes the CNC cycle along with the forming cycle. So it was about twenty, if you round it up, twenty dollars per piece just to form and trim uh, the plastic, the form, and the trim, and then you calculate uh, about another twenty dollars. If you if you cost average the tooling involved into it, so the cost to it was about forty dollars, and we made two hundred. So it, uh, our out of pocket was in the neighborhood of eight eight thousand dollars, if I recall. And you you obviously sold them all, right? You sold out. Um, eventually, <laughs> it's from that uh, that particular piece, the first run of that. Uh, actually sold out right as we finished the other four ramps for that machine, uh, which was <laughs> bad on our part. It was something that we... Uh, so you couldn't uh, sell, like, somebody an entire set of ramps at that point. <laughs> yeah. We, we finally got the other... Sorry about the background there. Had to, the um, We finally got around to making the Bigfoot the lowered upper, upper to lower in the canyon ramp for that. And that was uh, a year and a half ago, I want to say. And so we started making them, 
And right as we finished up, we realized that we were out of the Whirlpool ramp. So here we had four ramps, and we were hoping to have a set of five. So then we had to go back and rerun that particular, that, the, we had to go back and rerun the Whirlpools. So bad timing on our part. So there was about a two-month delay where we didn't have the complete set of five that we have now. So now you've got, the, the, you were originally making the tooling. But now you've got access to Gene Cunningham's supply of, of ramp tools. Is that correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and so how did you get this relationship with Gene going? How did this all come about? Uh, that was something that was started with Kerry uh, Stair when he went to work helping out with the Bing Bang Bar. Kerry Stair and I have always uh, been good friends uh, since I started the ramps. And we've uh, talked. He's a great guy. Uh, has really been supportive of uh, Pinball Incorporated since we came out and introduced ourselves to the hobby. And when he went to work for with Gene on the Big Bang Bar, uh, him and I were talking one night on the phone, and uh, it was brought up that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could... He was telling me about all the tools that he saw there. Uh, as far as the ramps, molds, and everything. And uh, he suggested that uh, we try to get together and, and form some sort of an alliance where we can all work together with this. And I was all for it. Um, and he presented it to Gene, who came back and, and uh, seemed very receptive to it. And so um, within, I'd say, a month, uh, Darren Jacobs, myself, and Carrie met with Gene and, at Gene's place and sat down and, and worked out the, um, the, the rough draft of uh, what is now some people uh, know as Napa. Okay, and, and, and this, this alliance, were, were you originally going to try and get more people into the alliance, or are you like it, the, this kind of close, tight-knit group. It seems no, we, we never considered it a tight-knit group. We It it was intended and still is an open-ended um, group. It's something that there's not a lot of people involved in parts manufacturing in the pinball business or in the hobby. Uh, and Gene has made an effort to uh, bring other people into the fold, which he has. Uh, he's brought the Canadian guys in to help him or to make play fields. Uh, he's brought in uh, uh, <coughs> uh, the creature uh, from Black Lagoon Hologram Project. Uh, he's brought in, um, he's working with, um, trying to remember who he was working with on uh, there was uh, oh goodness I'm drawing a blank here there was one other company he was working with I want to say on other play fields but I, I can't recall who that was but Genus has tried to, to keep it open ended which is what we wanted to do um, and while it's open ended it's something that Gene has uh, I know in my case allowed me to still basically work independently um, and and you know I'm still a separate entity although we work together 
in if you need a mold for Gene for a particular ramp, and you get in, I mean, are these all these molds from Gene? Are they pretty much just plug and play? You just grab one and and away you go, or do you have to, uh, you know, um, invest money in refurbishing them or, or doing any work to them to get them to go? Well, it's, it depends on the on the tool. We were able to run the uh, whitewater topper or. Uh, Excuse me, the whirlwind topper without any modifications, anything. Uh, the Earthshaker spiral ramp uh, took just a little bit of modification to it, um, and not modification, but it really was just more, nothing more than than really cleaning up and and polishing up a little bit. Uh, with some of the tools, uh, when William shipped them. They didn't take the best of care, so they have little dings in them here and there. So they're going to have to have minor repairs, um, nothing too serious. And in some cases, we're having to really, uh, in the whirlwind tool, we're having to repair. There's a gate that's actually in that tool that we're having to repair. So it's just varying degrees, but they they all they all need something, whether it's minor or moderate, uh, because the bases of them are uh, either moved or removed. And when I say the bases, you have a wood base that you hook the vacuum up to, and that's uh, just simply screwed onto the tool. And if it's there, it's uh, if it's on the tool from jeans, we we have to take and remove it, put a new one on there because the wood is so old that it just wouldn't handle the vacuum. Or in most cases that we're discovering, that uh, base is already it's just gone. So we just got to make up another one, and that's nothing serious. Uh, and, and in some cases, they have uh, water cooling lines going through them, and uh, we can. Sometimes use those water cooling lines, and sometimes we have to not use them. Uh, if we can use them, it speeds up the cycle times of the operation, which will help the cost of the ramp or the the end cost of the ramp. But uh, it's not that big of a difference. It's it's really twenty five to fifty cents per piece. So it's not not a big deal if we can or cannot use the water lines. Hmm. So overall, it sounds like that you've got a pretty good working relationship with Gene then. Yeah, Gene and I, and some people may or may not know the history of Gene and I as far as our relationship goes. And and some people have the opinion that since I was making ramps back when Gene was the um, sole supplier of Williams Valley Parts, as far as licensed parts, that Gene and I were uh, basic uh, enemies, if you want to call it that. And that was never the case. Gene and I have, have have always been able to be, we've always gotten along. Even the first year that I went to Expo with the new ramps, uh, was he thrilled with me making ramps? No. But he never once said, James, you can't do this. Uh, we did have discussions about decals, um, which is, uh, um, that is a copyright issue, but the ramps themselves, uh, Gene understood, and, and we talked about it, that uh, they were not copyright issues. And so uh, I, I felt that Gene was really, um, I appreciated the way Gene treated me. 
really all along because he he never really attacked me and tried to get me to stop. Uh, and, and in some ways, I, I really feel like he he may have respected me a little bit for uh, the undertaking of making parts because it wasn't until I started making these parts that I understood what it really took to make pinball parts and how daunting the task actually is. It's not easy to just tool up and start making parts. Um, it, it is really quite an undergoing, an undertaking. And uh, I, I developed a, a lot of respect for Gene and his undertaking. Uh, and uh, at the same time, Gene treated me with uh, the utmost respect. So we always had a good relationship. Uh, and so uh, I was I was really happy to, to actually make it a a a business working business relationship as we have now. Now, what about the decals? How how did that? Because, like you said, there it's the artwork, and and there was some concerns with that. How did you get that all straightened out? And and what issues were there? And how did you solve? Well, them? of course, the issues are that the decals themselves are indeed copyrighted. There's uh, if you talked to me five years ago, I'd maybe use a little different terminology, but uh, when it comes right down to it, they are a Williams copyright. Um, so, what, um, as I started making the ramps, I was out searching and beating the streets trying to find original decals. Uh, and, uh, I found decals. Um, and the suppliers of those decals said they were quote unquote NOS. I took their word for it. Now, that wink, wink, nod, nod, whatever you want to say. And at that time, I was able to find Adams Family decals, uh, Indiana Jones decals, and Star Trek Next Generation decals, and Twilight Zone decals. Uh, and it was something that Pinball Incorporated never had or never made any decals, never solicited to make deca- have decals made, but we were able to find them. Um, then, of course, when uh, the opportunity came along to work with Gene, uh, through Gene, we're now able to have all the decals that are going forward as we get them made, uh, have them approved by Williams, as replacement parts, so they are now approved as replacement parts for Williams Pinball Machine. Now, when the uh, when the Australian gentleman came into the picture, did this mm-hmm. make life more difficult, or really didn't matter, or or what? Well, if the time frame was when Wayne came into the picture, um, I had not officially signed up with Gene. Although Carrie and I were talking about it, and uh, the you know the thought process was already there, um, and so um, to say that uh, I would say that he really had no bearing on what I did. Uh, now, as far as uh, others like Darren Jacobs. Um, 
I would say that he did have a little bit of a bearing as to which direction Darren ended up going. But at the time that he Wayne took over, um, I really, you know, I, I didn't really think anything of it as far as it having an impact on me or on Pinball Incorporated. So he's had he's nothing to, in your uh, in your perspective. In in your alliance with Gene was not a reaction to anything that he did. Or? Um, I would say no, because my alliance with Gene was more on the lines of of going forward and being able to uh, make my parts official replacement parts or have them labeled as official replacement parts, which they, it's not something that I had to have done. Uh, making pinball ramps would, it was, is something that is not an infringement item. So I could continue to make pinball ramps regardless whether I was uh, working with Gene or not. The reason I wanted to work with Gene is twofold. I like working with Gene. I like working with Kim Carter. Um, and um, it's, it was beneficial for me from the perspective of having access to the tools to make the ramps because that's a, a $3,000 to $5,000 savings that is uh, automatic or immediate just by having access to the original tools. And now you use you use a thicker uh, PET G plastic on your ramps too than the than the original ramps. Is that right? Yes, the original ramps used, uh, as far as I can tell, most if not all of them used a .125 or or a one eighth inch thick stock. Uh, we use a .187, which is fifty percent thicker. And does uh, that also? Does that it's screw up the tooling? Plastic, because the original plastics, as far as we can tell, and, and this is something that uh, somebody else may be able to enlighten us on, um, but as far as we can tell, the original plastics actually had more of a butyrate stock to them than a, a because PTG back in the early or late late eighties, early nineties was not a prevalent plastic. Uh, butyrate was. And did the when you use this thicker uh, material, how did the were there any modifications you had to make to the molds? No, not to the molds. Uh, where we compensate for the thicker plastic is in the mounting points, uh, and also if there's clearance issues, we have to compensate using the the the. CNC machine to trim them where we can uh, compensate for uh, vertical clearances um, or, and in some cases, horizontal clearances. Uh, the tools themselves, uh, the thickness of the plastic uh, has really no pluses or minus to it at all as far as uh, I've been able to use either original tools or even uh, the tools we created. The tools we created were used, uh, or were created by using original parts. Uh, we just splashed the original parts and made a tool off of them. And the only thing that we have to compensate—I can't say only thing—but one of the things we do have to compensate for is that PETG does shrink when it uh, cools off. So there's a, about a 
one-sixteenth of an inch shrinkage for every 18 inches of plastic. So when we do the trimming and when we do the uh, mounting uh, points, we do have to make a compensation for that. So as far as the, the thickness of the plastic now, there's, there's no issues there at all. So what's the future for Pinball Inc.? Um, just continue on making, making plastic, making uh, ramps. Are you going to expand um, into any other plastics or, you know, silkscreen plastics or anything, or are you going to stay just with basically no, ramps? No, uh, first of all, I'm colorblind, so I don't want to get into anything that's got to do with artwork. Um, I, I still don't make decals. Uh, we, we ship those out for other people. Uh, to make. Darren Jacobs actually made the last set of decals for us. Uh, and, I, and in the future, I would hope that he continues to make decals for us. Um, so, but silk screening, that's not my, I don't want to get into that. I, I know very little about it and don't want to know a whole lot about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, well, I just got back from Australia. Oh, oh, and that was a that was a fun trip. Uh, I actually uh, got to meet Wayne and went by his shop. And, and uh, how was Wayne's there. shop? In a couple of weeks, uh, a good mate of mine, uh, Greg Berry, who is now um, he is the owner of RTDD, which is the Australian distributor for our products. And um, I would like to say that if anybody ever gets a chance to go to Australia, take it. Uh, it's a beautiful country, beautiful people, beautiful country. Uh, just had an absolute wonderful time over there. And, and how did Wayne treat you when you showed up? Uh, we had a, a very uh, cordial conversation. Uh, it was, uh, I went by there uh, the Friday, last Friday, or no, last Thursday, and um, spent about two hours. Um, just a casual, cordial conversation. Uh, really, no, no tension, no animosity. Uh, uh, it was quite pleasant. Did he show you the shop? Yeah, for, for the whole part. Yeah, I mean it's uh, uh, it's quite unassuming. It's it's just a small shop. It actually reminded me of the last uh, retail shop that I had, which is it was about yeah, it's about twenty four hundred square foot. Um, uh, and it's something that that's what Wayne was using. I understand that that is what Wayne was using or is uh, had been using up until the time that he uh, signed the agreement with Williams. Uh, so from what I understand, he's supposed to be moving at some point into another facility to accommodate his expansion. But uh, the building he's still in now is the one that he had when... Uh, he was doing retail, uh, selling machines, which, from what I can see, he's still doing some of that. And could you get any kind of feel for how the Medieval Madness project is, is coming? Uh, not really. Um, you know, that's something that I didn't go there to investigate. I didn't sit there and walk into the place saying, okay, what's what's going on with Medieval Madness? Uh, uh, based on what I saw, he's got some parts that, um, he's got one room, uh, a small room, it's got some boxes of parts in it, it's about a, 
I would say a 15 by 15 by 10, maybe 18 by 10 uh, room that has uh, one cube foot boxes with parts in them, various parts, and and, and from what he showed me, uh, a lot of those had medieval madness parts in them. So he's it looks like he's acquiring parts. Uh, and I would assume, therefore, some sort of assembly, but there was no actual uh, indication at all that any assembly is starting to take place. Uh, I would, uh, if I was to speculate, I would say that he's still in the acquiring mode, trying to get parts to uh, to put into the assemblies. Hmm. Okay, anything else you want to add, James? Um, not offhand, that's... Uh, not unless you have something you'd like to ask. No, I think we um, pretty much covered it all. Uh, you know, I think we covered all the bases pretty well. So, well, I, you know, I appreciate you coming on and talking to with us. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's good. I, I, I really like uh, talking to you and seeing, uh, you know, wh- what you've done and kind of your progression, you know, through the business and the hobby and how you've really helped us out with, uh, you know, ramps for, uh, you know, all these 90s machines. They, they sure needed it. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, and, and uh, it was something that uh, I really like doing because it has kept me in the hobby. Uh, without it, uh, I shut my retail shop down three years ago, and at that point, I would have uh, most likely gone back into the computer field. And fortunately, I didn't have to. I was able to stay in this. And Oh, there is one thing I'd like to add is that uh, we will be at the Texas show um, not this weekend, but the following weekend. We're, we're planning to do that show. And uh do have some pictures that I took while I was at in Australia, including pictures uh, at Wayne's Place. So uh, if anybody wants to stop by the booth out there, I'll, I'll, I'll have them with me. All right, great. Thank you, James. Appreciate the call. All right, well, thank you. All right. Glad I could do it. Take care. All right, All right you too. Bye. All right, I want to thank James Laughlin of Pinball Inc. for coming on to TopCast for a nice interview explaining his business and how he makes uh, pinball plastic ramps for the 1990s uh, Williams and other brands of pinball machines. Thank you again, James, and until next time, uh, signing out on TopCast.